So I think we're all here um, because we're interested in how psychiatric problems um, happen, how they emerge over development. And we've heard from Essie's talks as well as um, Sarah's talk just before that both genetics and environment are important in um, sort of increasing or decreasing risk for psychiatric problems emerging. Uh, however, the way that this actually happens, how do genes and environment come together and alter uh, biology in a way that might set you up at increased risk for mental health problems is very much a, a black box still. Um, so what I'm gonna be doing uh, very briefly today is talk about how epigenetics might start to help us understand uh, how genes and environment come together and how they might influence sort of biological embedding of experiences. So I'm gonna slightly, uh, I'm gonna uh, briefly start with what epigenetics are. And I, I apologize for being very simplistic here, but I just wanna give a, a, a brief picture um, for who's not so familiar with it. Um, so if we uh, think about the DNA sequence, there's actually a second layer of information on top uh, of the sequence called the epigenome, which literally means above the genome, that regulates when and where genes are expressed, how they're used. So if we can think of um, DNA as being sort of the biological hardware, we're born with it, uh, and for the most part it doesn't actually change throughout your life, and it provides all the instructions you need for functioning, basically. Uh, then we can think of epigenetics as a sort of software that tells cells which bits of this genetic material they actually need and which, which ones they should use. So if we think about cells in our body, every cell contains exactly the same genetic material, the same sort of recipe uh, of instructions for, 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 for what we need. Uh, however, we know that cells specialize. So for example, a brain cell will look very different and do very different things than say a liver cell. And how is this possible if they both have access to exactly the same information? Well, the way that this is possible is that epigenetics is helping these cells uh, say, okay, you don't actually need these genes, you, you need these ones. Um, so the ones that might be read by a, a brain cell will be quite different than the ones that are read from a liver cell. And this is how we're able for cells to specialize and to maintain a certain cellular identity and know what to do. And the way that this happens is not by changing the DNA sequence at all. Epigenetic processes don't change the DNA sequence, but they just make it harder or easier to read. And there are different ways that this can happen, and I'm gonna focus here on one type of mechanism called DNA methylation, because so far it's the one that's best understood and sort of more easy to uh, quantify and analyze. So DNA methylation is the chemical addition of a methyl molecule uh, to specific DNA base pairs. So we have four base pairs. A always binds with B, C always binds with G. And where C and G bind together, this is, this is the type of base pair where these methyl molecules can attach, a bit like they can stick like glue, basically. And if we think of typically a gene that might be active here with the green dot, um, you might have a gene that is kind of open to be read and uh, usually transcription factors will be able to bind to the gene, read the information and go off with the instructions and make what, what the gene is coding for. However, if you get a lot of these methyl molecules sort of sticking to these DNA base pairs, what's happening effectively is that it's creating a physical barrier around the gene uh, that means that, that, that these transcription factors have a hard time binding to the gene. So although the DNA sequence has not changed, 
there's almost like this physical barrier that's uh, been created that makes it very hard to access the information so that the gene becomes silenced. It, it's just not accessible. Uh, so, again, there are many exceptions, but typically what we think of is higher levels of DNA methylation uh, relate to lower levels of gene expression. So it's a very brief summary here. Um, epigenetic processes regulate when and where genes are expressed without actually changing the DNA sequence itself. And one of these processes, DNA methylation, is the addition of a methyl molecule to specific <coughs> DNA base pairs, which by doing so creates a physical barrier and makes gene expression quite difficult. And just one thing I'd like to uh, say, we often think uh, it, it, epigenetics are often referred as these sort of um, uh, processes which genes get switched on or off. I wouldn't quite say on or off, uh, but more like a volume tuner. <laughs> it helps to sort of fine tune uh, the levels of expression. So it's not a binary kind of thing. All right, so DNA methylation levels, they vary. Uh, but what tells a cell how methylated a gene should be or not? What are the sort of causal factors that determine these epigenetic processes? Well, interestingly, at, at a quite global level, it's the same things that we're interested in with regards to psychiatric problems. We find that both genetic and environmental influences may be important in modulating epigenetic levels and therefore the way genes are activated or not. So, sorry, I'm going back to the twin design. This seems to be quite of a, a, a you know, a common thread in our in our talks, but it is a very powerful sort of uh, design. And uh, Essie um, and Sarah have already <coughs> covered the basis. So all I'm going to say is that when you look at identical twins who share 100% of their DNA, you look at how similar they are in their epigenetic patterns, and you compare that to how similar the epigenetic patterns are in non-identical twins who only share half of their DNA, what you find is that the identical twins not only look much more alike, but they're also much more alike in their DNA methylation patterns. So these are uh, epigenetic processes like DNA methylation seem to come under considerable genetic control and are under moderate to strong genetic influences. So genetics are important in determining whether these genes are methylated or not. However, if we just ignore the non-identical twins for a minute and we focus on identical twins, what we also see is that as they age, they become more and more dissimilar in their levels of uh, DNA methylation. So although they start off being very similar and probably will be more than most fraternal twins throughout their life, there is space for divergence. And this uh, has been sort of coined the epigenetic drift uh, with increasing age. And what's interesting is, again, if we take just physical looks, you know, identical twins with age, they will start to look less, less uh, similar. And the same thing is happening with epigenetic patterns. And what that has been suggested to indicate is that as twins start to be exposed to different things or seek different environments, um, they, you know, maybe they, they start going to different schools, make different friends. One might start smoking, the other one not. All of these environmental things might uh, accumulate and sort of drive these uh, differences at a biological level. And since then, um, there's been a, a huge increase in interest in how actually the environment might affect gene expression. Um, and by now, associations have been identified uh, with a range of different environmental exposures, not just sort of direct uh, physical exposures like what you eat, 
might affect your epigenetic processes, whether you smoke or not, substance use, toxin, sort of to uh, toxic exposures, but also non-physical things like social exposures, like things that we're interested in when we think about mental illness, uh, such as early life stress. These can also seem to um, influence epigenetic patterns. And the first study that really uh, provided um, quite compelling clues about this is this work that was conducted 10 years ago. It's an animal study um, that looked at uh, sort of uh, the influence of maternal behavior on uh, DNA methylation. Um, and what, what these uh, researchers did is that they noticed that just like in humans and a certain to a certain extent, uh, rats show naturally occurring variations in the quality of parenting that they provide. So at one end of the spectrum, you might have some uh, uh, female rats who show very high levels of licking and grooming, which might be taken as a proxy for sort of warm, caring, attentive parenting. And on the other side of the spectrum, you might instead have uh, the opposite pattern. So some female rats show very low levels of licking and grooming, which might instead be taken as a proxy, as a proxy for neglectful parenting. So what these researchers did is that they really focused on the extremes and they compared uh, levels of DNA methylation in the pups uh, of the, these sorts of high licking and low licking uh, and grooming um, uh, mothers. And they focused on DNA methylation levels of a specific gene called the glucocorticoid receptor, which is extremely important for stress response. It's, uh, uh, it's one of those genes uh, that regulates sort of the HPA axis and sort of um, uh, biological responses to stress and adaptation, and is also a candidate for um, uh, stress-related psychiatric problems. So what, the, what, what these uh, um, uh, researchers found was that on the one hand, um, the high licking uh, and grooming Pops, what they showed was low levels of methylation of this gene, uh, which related to the gene being quite active, uh, which meant that there was a higher expression of glucocorticoid receptors. And when the pups were confronted with stressors later in life, they were more resilient. They showed, uh, you know, less lev lower levels of um, circulating stress hormones. Behaviorally, they showed lower anxiety. They could bounce back quite easily from stressors. On the other hand, uh, the pups who had been more like the proxy of neglect, they showed the opposite pattern. They showed high levels of methylation of this gene, which meant that the, the, the expression levels were impaired. Um, in turn, this related to a lower expression of glucocorticoid receptors. When confronted to future <coughs> stressors, these pups had a much harder time. They had uh, more lingering sort of stress hormones in the system. They showed higher anxiety and more aggression. And interestingly, when they had pups of, of their own, they showed a very similar type of parenting as well. Um, so I think this was a very interesting study for a, a number of reasons. First of all, it was one of the first to show that social experiences such as maternal care can have visible quantifiable effects on biology and on the way that a gene like the GR gene might function. And second of all, that these epigenetic changes could have a measurable effect on behavior, uh, such as anxiety and, and, uh, and aggression. What was interesting was that this uh, follow-up studies also showed that you could reverse these effects, um, either chemically, so by reversing levels of methylation of this gene, 
This parallels a reversal behaviorally, so a normalization of anxiety uh, and aggression, but also through cross-fostering, so through what we might you know, think of a more uh, social intervention in a sense. So I think this was the first study uh, to show that disordered outcomes such as anxiety uh, and aggression could be potential adaptations to an early environment via epigenetic changes. And since then, uh, this has really spurred a huge increase in, in the area of social epigenetics to try to understand how these social experiences might shape uh, children's uh, development. And the, the glucocorticoid receptor findings have been replicated in uh, uh, multiple human studies. It's one of the few things that show quite promising replication effects, um, both when looking at uh, the brain. So for example, uh, studies have found looking at post-mortem hippocampus uh, tissue in uh, individuals who had committed suicide and, and had been exposed to maltreatment early in life. They show these kind of changes in, uh, in methylation levels, but also in living human beings, uh, these same signatures have been found based on, say, blood or, or saliva samples. So it seems to be a potential biomarker of early stress exposure and, and adaptation. Uh, however, as the field is moving forward, we've all, we're also you know, moving beyond the GR gene. We want to know across the genome, what are these kind of adaptations, what kind of genes are being upregulated or deregulated as a result of these early experiences. And also we're moving, uh, we're widening the net in terms of environmental exposures. So research from our lab, for example, is interested all the way to the prenatal environment because the uterine environment is very sensitive to stress and sends signals uh, to the developing baby about uh, sort of what it may be able to anticipate, uh, not at a conscious level, but you know, uh, of the environment uh, postnatally. So what we're seeing is that things such as maternal smoking, stress, nutrition can affect DNA methylation patterns at birth and that this can have uh, consequences for later development. Um, also, there's a, a, a big uh, interest in postnatal ex extreme stressors such as child abuse and neglect and what kind of influences they might have epigenetically and also a range of, of other exposures. But what I should say here is that timing is important and we have heard a lot about development. Um, epigenetic processes are very dynamic across development. They regulate a lot of developmental functions. So at what time point that stressor happens? Is it prenatally, in early life, as an adult might have different consequences on these epigenetic patterns and on downstream behavior. And it might help us to understand a bit more this multi-finality, why the same stressor uh, may, may lead to many different uh, consequences. So in summary, when we think about what actually affects DNA methylation patterns, we find that it is both under uh, considerable genetic control, uh, but also that there's growing uh, evidence for um, environmental for, for being sensitive to environmental influences, not just direct exposures, but also more social uh, or, or parenting exposures early on. And so together, this seems to suggest that DNA methylation may represent a potential mechanism underlying at the interface of genes and environments, so underlying uh, gene environment interplay uh, across development. 
So what bearing does this actually have for development and psychopathology? Um, well, before we even knew about the fact that DNA methylation levels may be sensitive to the environment, these processes were really looked at, at a very, under very biological cellular lens. And we know from those studies that epigenetic processes are extremely important for normal development. Not only do they coordinate cellular specialization, so why cells specialize, why they maintain certain identities, but many, many other things like X chromosome inactivation in, in girls uh, uh, as opposed to boys, that's uh, through epigenetic patterns, uh, hormonal changes across development, for example, in the teenagers, all these kind of changes are being regulated by these uh, differences in switching on and off of genes. I know I shouldn't say that, but you know, like um, sort of increasing and decreasing levels of expression and also brain function, uh, neural function is very much regulated by these epigenetic processes. So it's unsurprising that disruption in what is really an essential process might lead to a range of disordered outcomes, both in terms of physical health. In fact, epigenetics is a very big area in cancer research because it seems to underlie potentially how this happens. Uh, but oops, sorry, <laughs> there you go. Um, but also uh, mental health. So, um, so far it has been uh, altered methylation patterns have been associated with a range of different uh, mental health outcomes such as anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, uh, addiction, and so on. For example, studies from our group, we, what we try to do is we try to use longitudinal study, prospective studies where we look at DNA methylation patterns before the onset of uh, the emergence of the psychiatric problems. And what we find is, for example, that early disruptions in genes that have to do with fatty acid metabolism and neurotransmission uh, are related to increased risk for ADHD uh, in childhood. Uh, we've also looked at conduct problems and we find sort of uh, altered epigenetic patterns early on in genes that actually have to do with pain sensitivity um, and perception, which is interesting. And with regards to callous and emotional traits, we found differences in epigenetic patterns related to oxytocin signaling. And we know that oxytocin it has been linked to empathy, fear recognition, pro-social behavior, all the kind of things that are disrupted in children with callous and emotional traits. So we're trying, although these, there's a huge overlap between psychiatric problems, we're, we're starting, we're trying to tease apart what kind of biological uh, mechanisms may be disrupted uh, across a range of different psychiatric problems, but also whether they might be quite unique signatures that might help us dif differentiate uh, these types of presentations. So in summary, DNA methylation plays an essential role in normative development. Um, therefore, uh, we also find that aberrant patterns of methylation are implicated in poor health and psychopathology. And DNA methylation, uh, as, as we see uh, as a result of uh, what I've presented to you today, may be a mediator of environment and genetic influences on developmental outcomes and perhaps help us better understand how this concept of latent vulnerability may be uh, engendered. So I just want to spend a, the last couple of minutes, I hope I have a bit of time, okay, good, um, talking about the challenges, because there's certainly a lot of challenges. It's, it's a new field, it's very exciting, but we have a long way to go still to try to really understand what is happening. And um, I, I kind of, I'd, I like to think about these challenges as groups of challenges. So you have three main, uh, really, sets of, of things going on here. First of all, just, Biologically, we know very little about epigenetics. Uh, for example, uh, we in our lab look at 
DNA methylation levels across <coughs> half a million data points per individual. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually maybe one or 2% of variation in DNA methylation across the genome. So we're looking at a really, really, really small fraction of what is out there. And DNA methylation is only one of several types of epigenetic mechanisms that are working in concert together. So we still know very little about how these things work. And we know very little about what is typical DNA methylation. How can we judge what is uh, deviant enough to be sort of disordered if we don't really know what typical is? But the problem is that typical actually changes over time because DNA methylation changes across development, it it's different between boys and girls, it's different across cell types, so again, the neuron might have a different patterns of epigenetic uh, uh, activation than a, a liver cell, as I was mentioning before. So it is very difficult to get a sense of what might actually uh, be normative uh, in a given context. And also, what is functionally relevant? Just because we find that a, Statistically, something might be really, really, really significant. You know, you might have your cases and your controls and you find this difference in this particular location of the genome. How does that translate biologically and how the gene is active or inactive? Uh, or how does it uh, affect downstream consequence on, say, neural development in a way that increases this risk? So what we need here is really more work to establish some sort of a benchmark that can help us uh, have a reference and also move beyond this, you know, these very local uh, observations to more of a systemic uh, uh, level of understanding by integrating multiple layers of information. Second set of challenges is really to do with research methodology. As I said, this is quite a new field. Um, so there hasn't been many guidelines to tell us how to do these things, and this has resulted in vast differences in how studies have processed their data, uh, what choices they make, what they control for or not, and this contributes to a lot of variability in the field and limited comparability, which, which we need in order to replicate findings and, and sort of uh, uh, identify the signal out of all of the noise that is out there. Um, also, although it's getting less expensive, it's still quite expensive, so uh, the sample sizes tend to be quite small, which might limit our power to really detect effects. Uh, and uh, we, unless you want to look at post-mortem brain tissue, which is interesting and relevant in some ways, uh, you can't have access to what's going on in the brain in living human beings. So we are limited in looking at epigenetics based on peripheral samples, but we don't really know to what extent it's really telling us about the brain, which is what we're interested in because we're looking at psychiatric problems. So what we need here is to maximize convergence, really have some guidelines that might help us systematically look at these things. Um, also capitalize on cross-species cross designs, which might help us have the, that level of experimental control, but also have that ecological validity in human studies, and also figure out ways to try to uh, see what's going on in the brain. So maybe relating peripheral DNA methylation levels to in vivo uh, it, uh, uh, imaging patterns in the brain. And finally, one big issue is causality. So most of what I've shown to you today is based on correlations and associations, and we really don't know. It's not like genetics that, that don't change, so they're not gonna get, uh, that your DNA sequence is not gonna change as a result of your environment. Epigenetics might, so you don't really know, for example, in addiction, 
Is it that certain patterns of methylation increase risk for addiction? Or is it that using substances changes your patterns of methylation? And both are very likely, actually. And it's probably very much of a, uh, of a sort of a, a vicious circle, in a sense. But we need to try to tease this apart uh, to, to, to see whether what its role might be uh, in terms of risk or consequence. So we need longitudinal data, and we need to use more sophisticated causal methods. Okay, just to conclude, if we manage to overcome all these challenges, what is really the worth of this information? What can we do with it? Um, well, I think that at, in the very short term, it can certainly help us inform existing models for things like gene-environment interplay, biological embedding of environmental experiences, adaptation to early life stress, and latent vulnerability. I think that epigenetics really fits in a lot of these different concepts and can really help us inform future research there. On the medium term, if we find enough replication and if we find signals that it are consistent enough, it might be used as a biomarker, like a peripheral biomarker for stress exposure, like the glucocorticoid receptor gene I was telling you about, uh, a biomarker for risk of certain uh, psychiatric problems, or even a diagnostic or prognostic biomarker, maybe telling us why some people might uh, respond better to certain types of treatments than others. Also, looking at these things longitudinal might help us to have a sense of when we should intervene. If we find that really it's prenatal exposures that are having this big effect on epigenetic patterns, then maybe we have to take a step back and go as early as we, as we can, as opposed to maybe later in development. And finally, on the very long term, um, there have been talks about uh, using this kind of information as a potential intervention target for personalized treatments, uh, but this is very much debated, and I'm uh, <laughs> uh, curious to hear your thoughts on all of these issues in the Q&A. Thank you. <laughs>